Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Literature, a podcast on the New Books Network. Many of you listening to this now probably recall growing up in a household of faith. You may have fond memories of the familiar rituals, the holidays, the shared family values, a weekly service at a church, a temple, a mosque. For many worshipers, religion can provide a sense of comfort in an otherwise uncertain universe. But for some, being in communion with God can mean placing your faith above all else, including your own children. Such was the case for writer Kelly J. Beard, whose family struggled to feed themselves under the fundamentalist purview of the Desert Chapel. In a new book, An Imperfect Rapture, Beard describes growing up in a community that required its members to participate in excessive tithing, among other practices designed to prey on those who had the least to give. As a child of the 1960s with a strong spirit, Beard defied the religious tenets of her upbringing, seeking to learn more about the world beyond the church and discovering her love of music, travel, and writing in the process. Winner of the Zone 3 Press Nonfiction Book Prize, An Imperfect Rapture tells the incredible story of one woman's redemptive journey through an oppressive religious childhood, exploring the ways we both can and can't transcend the circumstances we're born into. Today on New Books in Literature, join us as we sit down with Kelly J. Beard to learn more about An Imperfect Rapture, available now from Zone 3 Press. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Zoe. So um, first, your book, An Imperfect Rapture, was selected by Janice Ray for Zone 3 Press's Creative Nonfiction uh, Book Award. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about Zone 3 Press and about your experience um, winning the award. I would love to. Uh, I would love to to just tell you how much I love Zone 3 Press. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with this manuscript when I finished it. I knew it wasn't going to be, you know, it's probably not going to be the kind of thing that, um, you know, the big five were going to be rushing to publish. And I also didn't want, I'd heard horror stories about, you know, larger publishing houses kind of trying to make manuscripts fit into whatever might be most appealing to a mass market. And, you know, I came to this to this process late. I worked six or seven years on it, and it I really wanted it to go out into the world um, intact as much as possible. So I had been, I'd sent it to a few agents, and then I sent it, I was looking at a couple of contests, but you know, contests usually cost a little bit of money, 25 bucks or so. And so I was trying to be careful about the contests I sent it to. And I came across the Zone 3 Press uh, Award, and I thought, I looked, I think it was in Poets and Writers magazine, and I recall seeing Janice Ray was the judge. And of course, I love her work. I had read Ecology of a Cracker Childhood a decade ago, and I just fell in love with her work. And so, and with her as a person and her commitment to the environment. So I thought if anybody kind of will find this manuscript resonant, it might be someone like Janice Ray. And I really was interested, like I said, in going to a university press or an independent, you know, respectable uh, independent press. So it would kind of be valued for what I was trying to do. I will say as an aside, two asides. One is Zone 3 Press has their 2019 Creative Nonfiction Book Award open right now. And to anyone who has a manuscript ready to go in creative nonfiction, I can't imagine a better place for you to land. So I would encourage you to to look it up. It's on, of course, the Zone 3 Press website. And I've also posted it on mine if you wanted to look on my, I think on my Facebook, not website. Um, But the other thing that I want to say is I found this so interesting because when Zone 3 Press, I believe they still have a 300 page limit. And my manuscript was 385 pages long. And And I saw the contest announcement about a week before the deadline. And so I just went through, because it was Janice Ray, 
I, I just said, okay, I've got to do this. I just went through, I, I just ripped it to shreds and got it down to, you know, I slimmed it down to the 300 pages. And so then after Janice chose it, which was a thrill and she was so kind and we communicated a little bit, but then I, but she didn't tell me this until I went to read with her at Austin P university last month. And she was so, I mean, she's just this brilliant light. It's like being around an angelic being. She, oh, she introduced me. And when she introduced me, she said that she had really not wanted to choose my manuscript, that she felt like when she was, she got all these manuscripts and great manuscripts, I'm sure, because I've seen some of the names that were semi-finalists. And, um, she was going through them and she said, I, I felt like this woman, me, had sent this manuscript in because we had, you know, we both grew up poor and there's these kind of fundamentalist, uh, you know, extremist issues in our lives. And and so she said, I felt like this woman had kind of targeted me. So I was kind of cracking up because, and also a tiny bit hurt because I thought, well, I did because I didn't think someone with, without, you know, some connection to that kind of past wouldn't necessarily get it. So anyway, but then she was, you know, kind enough to say, and obviously um, that she just kept coming back to it and decided she couldn't not, not award it um, just because of the writing and, and had to get over um, <laughs> her initial impulse not to award it to me. So, but anyway, um, the press is amazing. I worked first with this editor who, you know, I just adore her name is Susan Wallace and she was so kind and patient and she retired, but she's still helping. And then, um, the woman who replaced her and still works with her is a woman named Aubrey Collins, who is also, who is still there. She's full-time editor and she's brilliant as well and kind. And I just think, you know, you hear so many horror stories, um, and it, I guess I just probably don't have the emotional, uh, wherewithal to have just gone out and, you know, gotten beaten up. I had beautiful, lovely, intelligent, supportive editors and at Zone 3 Press, and I'm, I'm really grateful to them. Well, that's wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about the story of an imperfect rapture. Um, so we begin in 1960s Palm Springs at the Desert Chapel, which is a Christian fundamentalist church that your family attended. Um, so I was wondering if you could describe for us uh, both Palm Springs during that time, as well as the church and religion that you were raised under. Sure. Those, those are interesting and uh, in many ways difficult questions. <laughs> Palm Springs was such a unique place back then, and I, I have not been back since I was a kid. And I, um, I, I really want to do that. I'm hoping that maybe I'll get a reading or something out that way to justify expending the fossil fuel to get out there. But one of these days I'd love to get out there. Uh, the house, just as an aside to give you a sense of what Palm Springs was like back then, there were celebrities, but we weren't quite such a celebrity driven culture, at least not in my, in, you know, in my little world. And so celebrities like Red Skelton and Bob Hope and, um, you know, I think Elvis Presley had a house there in Liberace and those kinds of folks had homes, Red Skelton, they had homes that were actually not even gated. So during Halloween, on the occasions we got to go trick-or-treating, my sister would go up and down, I think that was Las Palmas Drive and some of the, uh, you know, ritzier areas. And these guys would, some of them would come to the door, Red Skelton would come to the door and hand kids silver dollars. So, you know, it 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 was that kind of environment, but it wasn't celebrity driven and it wasn't although it was kind of the oasis for the stars, I think, to visit from Hollywood, um, it was still a, kind of a small town. There was a small area, you know, there's a country club and some very uber rich people. But I actually, even as a kid, although I knew we were poor, I don't, I didn't feel so far out of the mainstream um, in that regard. I was, I knew I was out of the mainstream in terms of our faith and our religion and how much time we spent in church and those kinds of things. But um, Palm Springs was just a little desert town in many ways. It was small. My parents' first house, the house that they moved into when I was probably a toddler, I was a toddler, so I was probably about two or three. And that house they bought with my father's VA benefit, I think it was $25,000. And I just looked at it. It was, it was resold 
last year and I looked it up. Now it's been totally renovated and he has a pool and all these things now because that's Palm Springs. But um, they bought it for $25,000. They lost it later in life, unfortunately, but it just resold for over half a million dollars. So that's what's happened to Palm Springs. Oh, and the church. So the church, the church is kind of fascinating to me still. I, um, I, it was started by this woman, Amy Simple McPherson. It's the Four Square Church, and it was huge. It really grew during the Depression and, you know, just after World War II. Amy Simple McPherson was a huge patriot. She was very much against communism. She, she merged nationalism and religion in, at the, for the time, a really unique way. She was also, though, you know, she was, she was a really interesting and complicated character. She had some kind of, um, I mean, she'd run off with a couple of men and she had had some kind of, you know, kidnapping drama that she had made up just so she could go to Mexico and stay with her lover for a week. I mean, all this stuff was, uh, that would have been nothing I would have learned as a kid. I learned all of this later, but she was, you just would not think she would have been the person based on her life. She actually ended up dying of a drug overdose. She does not seem like the kind of person, you know, looking at her bio that you would think, oh, this person is going to start this strict fundamentalist faith. And since she started it, what I found also really interesting, and maybe one reason our church did not tend to be as misogynist as, um, you know, I think some some churches of the era and uh, sensibility might might have been or are is that since it was started by this woman, they really couldn't say women can't preach. <laughs> so you know there were a lot of women in in the ministry in that church. But on the other hand, I mean the church. If you and again, I don't know that that we were ever taught this as part of the church, but um, it did have its roots. I think are based in the holiness tradition. Um, although they didn't handle snakes, um, the folks up, you know, the like the holiness tradition in Appalachia and West Virginia and even down into Georgia, they, you know, they did all the all the other um, gifts were manifest. So prophesying, speaking in tongues, those kinds of things. And I'll and I'll say something about speaking in tongues because people are always so curious about that. And I I do find it's that's a I didn't talk a lot about it in the book, but I recently read an essay by a woman in creative nonfiction and she was writing about speaking in tongues. And one of the things she said that I found so interesting, and it is something that is taught very strictly, I think in fundamentalist churches um, or Pentecostal churches, I should say. And that is that you really don't talk about it. And so she did. And what I found kind of fascinating is that her, her description of it, was completely different than my experience. So while I don't want to go down that track too far, I just thought, well, how interesting. And I've been thinking about just um, touching base with her and maybe having a conversation with her. So throughout, as I was reading, I was so impressed um, by your ability as a writer to render such minute detail uh, in the dialogue and the recollections of place down to the names of streets and the clothes that you wore when you were a child and so I was, I was just curious, what are some of the strategies that you employed in remembering these details on the page? Um, did you have a collection of artifacts or did you have people to fact check with? Oh, you know, that's such a hard one, I think. And I'm, I'm not trying to make my childhood out to be the biggest trauma that ever happened. It certainly wasn't. And there were, you know, there were lots of wonderful moments, I'm sure. And, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is, but I will say that when when folks experience uh i think childhoods like mine or difficult childhoods or traumatic childhoods they don't tend to have and i'm finding this out actually by just talking to a lot of people and reading the research on this but they don't tend to have linear memories as much as these kind of episodic almost like flashbulb memories. You know, the old Kodaks that had the flashbulbs, you're probably too young for that. But back in my day, they had this little flashbulb that went on, you hooked it on the camera. And then when you took a flash, everybody was blinded for about three days. And, and those are the moments. So I remember very clearly these moments and then maybe nothing, literally there's a part in the book where I say, and I actually got challenged on this a couple of times where 
where I said something to the effect about after there was a, a, a beating uh, that my, when my father beat my brother just before he went into the army. And, and I say in the book, you know, that my memory stops there and doesn't, I don't really have any memory of anything until it must have been about a year later because he, you know, there had been all these other things. I knew it happened just because of the time frame. I know he had to have graduated from high school, you know, this and this and this had to have happened. And yet there's, I have no recollection of it all. So, so one of the, one of the strategies that I employed was to just kind of, believe it or not, and this sounds a little woo woo, but I would come up with a memory and I would just sit with that memory and I would just, I would just sit almost meditating and praying and thinking and trying to, you know, remember all the things around that memory. And sometimes there's a section that I took out that there's a, that is now a flash piece and it's about my brother and it's me and we're in a pool. And someone was asking me recently about that piece in particular, in terms of memory, excuse me, because I talk about the, the tufts of his, Hair, the hair on his toes and his legs kind of undulating like arms in prayer. And someone said, well, you know, that image, you know, I love the image, but could you have thought of that as a child? And in, in fact, no, I wouldn't have thought of that as a child. Although clearly I must've seen my brother's hair underwater and, you know, that, that is a memory. And so I, I create, recreate that memory on the page just by doing that, just by thinking about him, thinking about that moment in the pool, but then knowing, you know, there might be three years after that, there's nothing. So I'd like to ask you about your mother, who's such a fascinating character in this book. So in the story, she's introduced as um, suffering from visions of angels and demons while also possessing certain sort of mystical qualities, right? So she has an ability to sense where to dig for well water, for example. (laughs) Um, exactly. Or, yeah, she's premonitions about things that that end mm-hmm. up coming true. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could tell us about her. She is. Well, first of all, she is still alive. My father isn't. Um, she's 91 and in Phoenix and doesn't know I wrote this book. <laughs> so <laughs> God bless her. Um, but yeah, she was the comp. She was maybe one of the most complicated characters to figure out how to write about, because obviously I love her dearly. And she has. And she does, and she was complicated in that there were times when she she was prescient. She did sense things. I remember there's the you know there's the one story about how she knew my brother had been in an accident. She dreamed that he was going to be killed, and you know, and they just prayed and prayed and prayed, and then he was in an accident. And just by you know at the grace of God and the the coincidence that our family doctor was behind him when the accident occurred. The surgeon said that's the only reason he survived. So it's just this, there were there were those moments of just experiential, you know, transcendence or whatever you want to call it, um, that that will always stay with me. On the other hand, I think she struggled with mental illness and depression in undiagnosed mental illness and depression. I think that sometimes, and I don't want to go too far down this road, but I do think sometimes really extreme religions allow people with mental illness to kind of hide it and um, to be accepted more than they would be if they were just, you know, a second grade school teacher and everybody observed them on that kind of level, uh, you know, daily. So yeah, she was a very complicated character. I've written a couple of essays about her since um, getting older. And I would say, and I, and I hoped that I had kind of sprinkled this notion in the memoir. Um, as she got older and I had a child, she became a very different person. I mean, I found her, I did not quit flinching around her because she slapped me so much until I was in my mid-20s. And so I just feel like she changed, she mellowed. And I think, um, but also there's the, there's also the complication of as she remained financially insecure um, and other people in the family had to kind of, you know, have to help her. I think sadly, it's also put her in a position where I don't think she can afford to be the person she was. But she's still deeply fundamentalist. I'll tell you, I have not had a conversation with her in my entire life that didn't start with, are you going back to church yet? Or what church are you in? <laughs> you <know? laughs> 
Well, I'm glad that you bring that up about um, religion because so I, I noticed while reading that imperfect rapture is is somewhat critical of various aspects of fundamentalism that are specific to your experience, but also perhaps emblematic of practices in other faiths. So specifically things like tithing, or you mentioned speaking in tongues, uh, the belief in angels and demons. And I was wondering if you could speak to your early skepticism toward these practices. I think my early skeptic, I mean, the skepticism took a while. I mean, I would think, actually, I kind of, I kind of worry that I didn't come to it earlier in life. Um, it tells, tells you something about how gullible I am, uh, perhaps, but, um, but maybe also just hopeful. Um, but I do think that church and religion has, has been my lifelong, uh, you know, bet noir in many ways. It's been, I've tried, I, when my daughter was born, I tried to go back to church. I must've dragged David, my husband, and my daughter to—I'm serious—twenty-five churches, trying to find one where I felt like, okay, I can, I can survive this one. And it isn't that I don't—that I don't have faith because I do. It isn't something I'm not a theologian, so I couldn't articulate it clearly. Um, it, but it is—I do think a lot about um, Jung and I've, I've read a lot of Jung and his last work, which was kind of the memoir, I think it's Memories, Lies and Dreams or something like that. And he says in there, you know, he kind of hid his own faith most of his life because he didn't want people to go off on a tangent about his faith and then discount the rest of his, you know, really intellectually rigorous work. And so, and he, and particularly because Freud was so anti-religion, um, so he kind of hit it. And then in this last book, he's, he addresses it briefly and says that he never lost his faith. And he, even when he didn't talk about it or, you know, want it to be the centerpiece of his work, he said, he, he told a few stories about things that had happened in his, in his life. And he said, once you've been through um, something that is truly experiential with spirituality, you can't lose faith no matter how many permutations it goes through. And that's how I feel. I mean, I, I practiced uh, being an Episcopalian. I ended up in Episcopalian church after trying all these other churches. And the, the tithing sermon is the one I'm serious that always gets me because I just, I do have such a grudge against the churches that we went to and the way they just wrung money out of these poor people. And I would see it very clearly in the groceries and in what we were eating. And I knew we could have better food and a better life if my parents weren't constantly giving so much money to the church. And, you know, and they would say, you know, the church comes first. I mean, I think you probably recall that there's a, I mean, one of those, one of those flashbulb points in my life was, watching an argument between my grandmother, Alice, who was just this really intelligent, brilliant, curious woman who was mystified by her daughter's choice and religions. And she was arguing with my mother about, I mean, she's, she was pointing to my sister and to me, and we were probably in some kind of ratty underwear, you know, with flip-flops on and just telling my mother, how can you give so much to this church when these kids are clearly in need? And, and my mother turned to her and said, and at that point it was about a building fund. And she just, and my grandmother said, I just cannot believe any God would want you to treat, you know, your children like this so that he can have another building. And my mother, and I've always found this very funny, but I don't think anyone reading it has ever found humor in this, but my mother turned to her mother who she adored. And she said, well, that just shows you how much you know about God. And so her, you know, one of the sad things about looking at the people who were in that church is that as terrifying as they were and as, as repressive and, uh, you know, violent quite often as they were so much of that was motivated by fear. And I, you know, I sometimes think if I imagined that my daughter was really going to be thrown literally physically into a lake of fire for eternity. If I didn't make her do X, Y, or Z, you know, who knows what I would have done. Throughout your story, um, education is consistently framed as sort of a, a means to escape. 
Um, but the you on the page faces a number of obstacles during her high school career, including one teacher insisting that she isn't quote unquote college material. Um, and while I noticed that the you in this memoir is a strong character who actively resists this label, um, I'm wondering what you think now about the idea of, of college material. What does this mean? Uh, how does it hold kids who are in the same position that you were back? And maybe you can think about this too in light of the, the college admission scandal going on right now. It, that is such a depressing scandal. But so, I mean, I don't think it surprises anyone who has gone through the system without privilege. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I don't, I think what is, is the sad part for me. And I mean, I feel like, but for the grace of God and thank goodness I got to college and somehow, you know, got through. Um, but I think the sad part is knowing just how close I came to never darkening the door of a college to never thinking I was right for it. And a lot of that had to do with not, that was not the religion part that was on our culture and how we treat kids who don't fit into the system. Kids who aren't wealthy, don't have privilege, don't have parents who are invested in the educational process. Um, and then layered on top of that, of course, we were really transient. So I was never in the same school from, I changed schools every year from eighth grade to 12th grade, once, twice in, in the same year. So there was never, and those are just crucial years. If you can just, hey, their parents, if you can stay in one place during those years, it's, um, those are crucial years for kids, obviously, for particularly for the school system to figure out or to help, you know, figure out, oh, this kid isn't just a total screw up or isn't an idiot or doesn't just don't, you know, doesn't know how to spell a word. Maybe there's something else going on. And I think had I been, you know, I, I, res I regret, I almost said resent, but there's a little bit of resentment too, but I regret and resent that public schools were not able to, to meet my needs by and large, or the needs of most kids who are poor, transient, you know, and, and so much of it, there's a scene in there where I talk about coming to class at 14, you know, so high that I could not even speak. And even that teacher who was one I really liked and was one of the few I expected to maybe reach out to me didn't. And so there were these few people, someone asked me the other day and I thought it was a really interesting question, you know, um, what would have happened if there had been one or two fewer kind people showing up in my life or one or two more uh, of the Mr. Woodies and the folks who really just completely dismissed me. And I just, I think I probably wouldn't be here with one or two mean people or one or two fewer nice, nice people in my life. I feel like the, you know, those people who the, the, the taxi driver, um, you know, in that one scene, I feel like he may have saved my life. And I, and sister bell buying me shoes in second grade. I mean, they're Mr. Prespo in high school. If you haven't read the book, I know these things don't mean anything to you. I'm just trying to get you to read the book. No, <laughs> but, um, you know, Mr. Prespo, uh, the most curmudgeoning high school principal ever, no one liked him. And he reached out to me. He saw something and he insisted on doing what he could do to get me focused on college and going, doing something with my life without him. I just, I think I, I have no idea what I would have done probably, you know, and there's no shame in it, but I just don't think it would have been as rewarding. Um, I would have never gone to college. I would have been, you know, a waitress or it, which I did of course, part-time anyway, but um, yeah, I just, I probably just wouldn't be here. So I think, you know, I don't, I also want to say this. I don't think education is the, I don't think everybody needs college education. I think it'd be great if we could kind of get some of the liberal arts educational aspects, the traditional liberal arts educational aspects into the high schools and the public schools for everyone and really try to focus on that and not make, you know, I mean, our whole system has gotten so skewed and capitalism is so out of control that, you know, and college degrees now are devalued. And I, so I, I don't know that going to college, I kind of hate to, to hear um, it reduced into, you know, the the secret formula to getting out of poverty is not necessarily going to college. Um, but I think it's, I think it's learning. I think the, the liberal arts have as much to do. I think my experience with learning music, even if that had been outside of the context of college uh, would have, would have done as much. 
for me just in terms of learning how to, in, in a lot of ways, learning how to calm my mind, learning how I mean, music, I really do believe, especially learning to play classical music does change the neural patterns in your brain and is very healing. So I think, you know, I just don't want to have anybody just say, oh, well, you know, we got to get all these kids to college and then everything will be fine. I, I, that's clearly not the answer, but but we have to figure out a way to not let all, so many poor and disenfranchised kids just keep cycling through unsuccessfully until they drop off and, you know. So um, I wanted to ask you about your parents again and their relationship to one another, because one thing that really struck me about this book is that um, even though uh, there there is sort of the the violence that you're talking about uh, in in the community that you grew up in, um, and both your mother and father are portrayed at times as physically and or mentally abusive, um, they have a real depth in their commitment and love for one another. Um, and I was struck by the fact that this is something that the the you on the page can't seem to relate to, or perhaps doesn't feel like she can have for for herself as a young woman. And so I was wondering if you could speak to to that. I have never gotten that question, Zoe, and that is really a a brilliant and interesting question. I I have looked at their relationship from the time I was a little kid. You're right. I mean, I've always felt excluded from their circle. I think, you know, if the other siblings, of course, we're pretty dysfunctional, so we don't, most of us don't talk, but um, I suspect they, they did as well. And, you know, they did have this, this kind of bubble around them. They loved each other so deeply. And I did know from the time I was a little kid, number one, I was never getting in their circle and number two, I didn't know, even as a little kid, I was agonizing over, am I going to marry Rex when I grew up or Sister Busby or Brother Gambino? You know, I had, I never had the sense, even as a little kid, that I was going to, to have that kind of love. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it seemed so exclusive to me, even as a child. But yeah, they, they and I think that's one of the things people have the people who have talked to me about the book quite often point to that. And they say, it's so, it's so interesting that your parents loved each other, but they were so mean to you guys would <laughs> not to be too reductions about it. But um, I do think it's, and I don't think that's that unusual. Maybe it is. I'll be I'm interested to hear what other people's experiences have been, but I think we tend to stereotype folks who, you know, frankly have difficult disciplinary uh it, methods with their children, we tend to think, oh, well, if you're going to beat your child, you're going to beat your wife or, or something like that. And I just don't think those two equate, at least they didn't in my experience. So then um, maybe speaking to, because you talked about, so early on in the book, um, the the speaker is thinking about who she's going to marry. And so there's Rex, her, her best friend, a little boy. Um, there's sister, Bubsy. Um, and so gradually the speaker discovers sort of her attraction to women and her potential bisexuality. Um, so considering your fundamentalist upbringing, as well as the social and political implications of the time, um, what were the stakes for you of, of coming out or staying in the closet? How did it feel to be grappling with these feelings? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to remember that back in that day and in that insular environment, I had never even heard of such a thing. I mean, I, I did not, of course, I didn't express many feelings at all around the house because I, I never knew when something I would say would, you know, either prompt a spanking or, you know, a lecture. So I remember one time, this is small segue, but I'll get back to your question. But I remember when I was a little kid, I had gone to the park and I heard someone say, holy cow. And I got home and I was playing in the kitchen and my parents were there. And I remember I wanted to say, holy cow. And I got the holy out. And then I thought, oh shoot, you know, if I say cow, am I going to get in trouble? And so my mind is racing. I've already gotten the holy out. And I remember I said, ghost not even thinking that that would be way worse than holy cow. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that because of those early experiences like that, where I just never knew if I said something, you know, I was always going to say the wrong thing. And so I really did not express anything deep 
to my parents, which is probably, I'm sure, true about Rex. And, you know, my boyfriend, my boy, my childhood friend um, and loved one who was the pastor's son in this church. And so he and I, that's one reason I think we probably forged such a deep friendship. I think he was the same way. He didn't share things with his older siblings or his parents. And yet we were having very similar experiences. So, um, but um, I think when I got to call it, I mean, obviously I knew there was a girlfriend I, I had in high school one time. And I, <laughs> I remember, I thought she was just gorgeous and we would spend the night together sometimes and, and we would always stay in the same bed. And then one one night she came over to spend the night and she didn't want to be in the same bed with me. And I just kind of, I, I felt terrible. I thought, shoot, what did I do in the middle of the night? What did I do in my sleep? Did I say something, do something? And what turned out that she was turning Mormon. And so she, but she didn't tell me that for years. But in any event, I, um, yeah, I think I just kind of ignored it mostly. I didn't, there was no big coming out scene in my life. There was no big, first of all, um, you know, my, coming out, the choice of coming out as a bisexual, there were, there was a woman I lived with briefly, but I never really even lived with people, male or female until I married David. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I didn't really have to have that conversation. And to my, I don't even know that I regret not doing it. I have to say that I'm, I feel like I lived my life around people who knew me openly but I didn't go to my parents and say, hey, guess what? I'm bisexual. My mother, I think at this point in life, would be more understanding. She's had a lot more experience and the world has changed. My father, who died in 1996, it would have meant the end of the relationship with him, period. I mean, people th- you know, I've, people say, oh, they would have gotten over it, this and that. No, I actually know he wouldn't have. And I don't know what the benefit to me would have been. I'd lived... I intentionally lived completely across the country from them. I lived my life, you know, as authentically and honestly as I could. But I will say even in, even in my life until I ended up going back to college and really think to, to get my MFA in creative writing and really starting to think about memoir, did I make it a really intentional, um, process of making sure anytime it, you know, anytime a question is asked where I can, I mean, I'm not just trying to go out there and say I'm bisexual, everybody, but anytime a legit, you know, a question is asked where I can openly talk about being bisexual, even though I chose to marry a man, I do that. I had a really interesting panel in Tucson at the Tucson book festival one of the panelists uh, that I got to be on with, and I just adored her, was this woman, Aro Kwan. Who, she wrote a novel about, um, it's called The Incendiaries, and it's about a religious fundamentalist group and getting caught up in that. And when I read it, I knew she had some experience, um, you know, beyond her creative imagination, which is quite wonderful in and of itself. But our moderator was this gentleman who was a retired Episcopal priest, John Kitagawa. And he was, he was brilliant and he, he let us kind of build a rapport and he, and we, so we talked back and forth. And at one point, I don't know who said it first, um, but someone asked about a passage about maybe she had been blogged as being bisexual and someone knew the passage in my book about being bisexual. And so they, that started a conversation. And what was really fascinating to me and I wonder if I would have done things differently if I were younger. So this is why I'm saying this. She talked about the fact that although she doesn't address her own bisexuality in her fiction, she did feel that since there are so few out um, gay and bisexual and lesbian Asian writers, she felt a duty to do that. And she's just, and, and she's very young. And so I think I didn't, I just, it, first of all, I wasn't writing, I was practicing law. So maybe if I had been writing back then, I might've felt more of a duty to kind of expose, you know, my, my, what I consider my personal life. But even after that, I have to tell you, this one man got very aggressive and he started asking really aggressive questions of her. I mean, just really personal questions. And then he came up to me afterwards and did the same thing. And so I don't, I mean, I, I don't mind it. I just told him, you know, 
what's on the page, you're welcome to read, but I don't have any responsibility to tell you about my personal life today. So that's all I can tell you. But I do think it kind of, it, it causes people to just, uh, I kind of go off the rails sometimes. But that being said, I, you know, if I were young, if I were writing, if I'd written this memoir at 30, I probably of course would have blogged about it as well. But it just, you know, get, getting back to this whole thing, and I hope I'm not rambling too much, Zoe, but I, I do I do remember very clearly, and I do believe this is in the memoir, when I went to the College of Great Falls, which was a private Catholic college at the time, so I haven't named that now, but it was such an interesting environment because the nuns were so liberal. I was shocked. I had no idea any religious people could be that, that liberal. And um, so they were, they were terrific to be around. Um, but also... You know, and already, even back in the day, it was only 1975, 1976, there were not a lot of openly gay people uh, out, but there were some. And I remember this one librarian that we had there. He was just, you know, very gay, very openly gay. Um, he ended up moving to San Francisco. And it was, you know, I think the nuns babe, really kind of adored him and were very supportive of him. But other than, than him, I don't remember any openly gay folks on campus, even though I was in the music department and, you know, art and creative writing to a large extent. But I, and I remember going to the library and picking up the Kinsey report and looking all through it. I think it was a multi-volume report, if I recall correctly, and finding a single reference to bisexuality. And at that point also, I think bisexuality in particular, because because it was a hard time, you know, for, it was a hard time. People were starting to come out as gay and lesbian. And I think bisexuality was really frowned on in a, in a way that's kind of unique. Cause it, I think, you know, gay people felt justifiably, I'm sure, well, you, you can hide. And so why are you even talking to me? And, and, or, you know, you're just doing whatever is convenient until later. And so, um, you know, I, I remember reading that one little passage and it, and even then I thought, I mean, it seemed so unlikely that there were that many other people out there that were bisexual. And I just, I think I, I don't think I committed at that time, but I remember feeling like, you know, I would love to be able to have a relationship with a woman, but I'm also happy with men. So I'm just going to live my life and hope that both of those things happen. And they did. And so, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, ultimately, so yours is a story about leaving an oppressive religion and then the ramifications of that upbringing. So um, when is it that you decided that you needed, you needed to leave the fundamental faith that you uh, were raised under? And then in what ways has growing up um, in this particular faith impacted your adult life? I think, and it's interesting that I didn't put this together with your previous question, but I, I think hearing this question, I would say part of the motivation of getting out and that the need to get out is that I knew that I was bisexual and I knew that I was not going to be able to be in the box they wanted. I was engaged to a really sweet young man and I know he adored looking at my parents and their relationship and imagined us like that. And I felt very disingenuous. I didn't, I knew, I had never told him I was bisexual, but I, and I knew that I was never going to be able to live. He loved someone I wasn't. I was just, you know, comfortable with him. And so I think part, that was part of it. I think as I traveled more, I mean, one of the best things about going to college really was the opportunity to travel to Strasbourg and to study piano on that scholarship that year, because I think Although, you know, I worry now about fossil fuel usage and, and too much travel, I th at least travel gets people, particularly people who have lived in those kinds of insular environments, travel does something that I think nothing else can. I mean, you can read about the Colosseum or you can read about, you know, whatever it is, but until you go see it and until you actually have the experience of of dealing with people who didn't grow up in your little environment or your cultural, you know, background. I don't think it's, it's as possible. It wasn't possible for me to grasp um, the really limited nature of where I came from. 
So, you know, to that extent, I think the more I did become educated and travel and read and, and get exposed to people, even Catholics, <laughs> um, who just didn't live the kind of repressive religious lives I had been, you know, accustomed to, I think I, I became, um, you know, broader minded spiritually. And I don't think I've ever wanted to lose faith. I mean, one of the, I think there are times in my life where I have felt like I'm losing faith or I don't have faith or I'm just in a dark period. I mean, I do have a lot of depression myself and there are times, you know, um, where I've just felt like it's all just a big scam. Nothing, there's nothing there but darkness. Um, and in those times I, I work actively to get back to having faith because I just, I don't think, you know, and I, and I have many friends who don't have, you know, lots of my, I'm probably, I would say probably the majority of my friends are agnostic or somewhere really close to that. Um, but I, I just don't feel like I could slog through this life without it. I, I, I do believe there's some kind of divinity out there, even though I can't, I can't, it's too big for me to nail it down. Can you tell us about the title, An Imperfect Rapture? So what, is, what does that phrase mean in the context of, of your story? For me, and I, have not, I haven't heard from anybody who gets this, and even the, the very brilliant moderator who um, I was talking about at Tucson, uh, since he was an Episcopal priest, he had this whole, it was really cute, he had this whole theory about, well, you know, the Roman cross did this, and the crucifix does this, and after he got through this long question about crosses and cross imagery, um, I said, I, I had to tell him the truth, which was, number one, in terms of the, the belt imagery on the cover, I almost didn't go with that. I had the title for a long time, so I'll come back to that, but when it came to the belt imagery, in the shape of a cross, I at first thought this is just this is this is just too much. This is reductionist, and you know, just it seemed uh, just a little alarmist. <laughs> um, so I didn't, and I just didn't want people to pick it up and think, oh, I know this story, and put it back. But then the more I, you know, I showed it to people I trust, and I talked a lot with my editor about it, and you know, we just went back and forth and back and forth, and I really did not find another. Um, cover that I felt was as attractive and interesting and creative. So we went with that cover and the, and the designer is a brilliant, brilliant young man also. Um, so I trusted him and I think, I think I'm glad that I did that. I, I, I love the cover now in terms of the name of the manuscript, the book, it came up with that actually way before I was, even close to finishing the book, I was writing short essays. And this would have been back, I was still practicing law and I was just starting to write a few short essays about almost like flash essays about my mom. The opening scene is is from that uh, kind of flash essay period. And the woman I was working with initially, her, her name is Elizabeth Cohen and I was working with her through the Gotham Writers Workshop. She's really brilliant. And she said, you, whatever you come up with, she had a title that I didn't like, but it did have the name Rapture in it. And she said, and so we went back and forth and she said, you know, whatever you come up with, I think Rapture should be in it. So I kind of hung on to that idea. But then as I got to the end of the book and I started thinking about suicide and um, as you know, the book ends with a suicide of someone who I loved deeply and I think his suicide was driven by the fact that he could never feel okay in our church that he, I mean, I don't know. We, I don't know if he was bisexual. I have always suspected he was, or maybe had, you know, become gay later um, in the years that we had kind of lost touch. I know that he was um, likely an alcoholic and maybe a drug addict which I think those things also are often, you know, covers for folks who have grown up in these kinds of repressive environments and are self-medicating themselves out of the pain. And so I know, you know, I, in, in, I don't want to give away the whole ending, but as I thought about his choice and I knew he had gone back to church and in our church, we call it rededicating your life where you confess your sins and you go forward and, you know, you, you say you're not going to do any of these things. Um, and then he walked out of that service and 
essentially within a few days committed suicide and did it in a way that he had said he would do uh, years earlier when we were kids. So I've always felt like suicide for him was his imperfect rapture. And I think that's where that came from. And that there must be better ways to, to rapture ourselves. Well, thank you, Kelly. Um, I have one more question for you. Um, and that is, what are you hoping that readers will come away from your story understanding better? And maybe what you just said about the imperfect rapture would be a good place to, to start. I would love readers to come away from the book feeling like they have had a glimpse into a life they didn't know existed and that it changes how they look at other people. I mean, getting back to the way, you know, we all go to, I mean, I go to a restaurant, I see two people at a table. I've got this whole story about them. You know, Oh, they're not a happy couple or oh, they're a happy couple. This is their 30th anniversary. And I've got this whole story I build around them, which has nothing to do with their real life. And so I think what I would really hope and pray is that this book, and I actually did keep this as a kind of prayer throughout writing this book, you know, the Aristotelian truth and beauty ideal. I was really hoping and praying that I would put enough beauty and truth on the page that the reader who didn't have that experience and who might be pigeonholing people who look like me or who had my experience and might be stereotyping those people and might not understand what's going on in their lives. I hope that it gives them a glimpse and some empathy. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Zoe. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.